As you know, and you have heard me say this to you before, there are all kinds of churches in this world. There are all kinds of churches right around us. Some big, some small. You find them in every community. All different denominations. All different names. And if you think with me for a moment, they do all different kinds of things. You'll find in some churches right around the corner that they'll be dancing around and waving their arms and uh, waving their hands and falling down on their faces or on their backs in the front of the church, wallowing around on the floor in these churches. You'll find healing or supposed healing. You'll hear some speaking in strange baby talk, and I'm not talking about Juliet, but you'll find some of these Adults talking in baby talk, saying that it is the power of the Holy Spirit. They're doing that probably right now in churches not too far from us. Churches that boldly say on billboards, try Jesus. You find in some of these churches, people will be standing, sitting, kneeling, standing again, sitting again, kneeling again. All at the prescribed times. While in other churches you'll find extravagant musical arrangements. Rock and roll power Christian music. Which is an oxymoron in my own opinion. Or maybe fine orchestral music. But in these churches you will have some that have an organ. Some that have a piano. And others who have no instruments whatsoever. Uh, by choice, while others might have and use hymnals, some might have printed on large screens around the auditorium, not only the words or lyrics to choruses, they will also flash perhaps from time to time a Bible scripture. Some sing hymns, some sing almost all choruses, and some believe in only singing psalms. Some have candles that you light and offer prayers to the saints. Some have big Bibles on communion tables, usually in front of the platform. Some have a pulpit off to the right. Some have a pulpit off to the left. Some have a pulpit way up where the preacher has to walk upstairs to get to it. Some have no pulpit at all. That's become a big thing. And some have it where it belongs, right in the center. For churches that have pulpits in the center believe that the Bible is to be central. That's why they do that. That's why we do that. Yes, there are all kinds of churches that practice all kinds of mannerisms in those churches, that have all kinds of theology taught, and sometimes no theology at all taught, each having all kinds of people in attendance, parking lots possibly overflowing, 
however common to each one of these churches in our day, is the likelihood that they are lukewarm, apostate, dead, filled with spiritually dead people. And no matter how many cars are in the parking lot, no matter how many people are in the pews, no matter how much furor, how much sincerity, how much solemnity, how much religious talk, how much stain in the stained glass windows, the people are still dead. Where God is ignored, where His Son is ignored, where His Word is ignored, where His truth is ignored... The church is dead, lukewarm, without Christ inside. This is what we find in the church at Laodicea. Return with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 as we continue on in our series, Dear Laodicea. We have seen from the passages before us in verse 14, the description of the one addressing the church, the amen, the faithful one, the true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this. This is the description of the one addressing the church. He is all truth. He is a faithful witness. He is the creator. From there, we went on to see under the broad heading, his depiction of the church in verse 15 and following, that they were not what they thought they were. They thought that they were in need of nothing. They thought, if you look at verse 17, that they were rich, wealthy, in need of nothing. But that's not the way Jesus saw them, because Jesus, as we read in that same verse, sees them as wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Not at all what they saw themselves like. We made the point that the only thing that matters is how Jesus sees us. That's what counts. It's not how we see ourselves, but it's how Jesus sees us. And in this passage, it's clear that they were not what they thought they were. And because they were so duped, because they were so deceived, because they had need of nothing, Jesus was sick. He says, you're lukewarm, and I will vomit you out of my mouth. We went on to see from there his kind declaration to the church, beginning in verse 18. I advise you, he gives them wise counsel. He is the one who knows what his church needs. He knows what our church needs more than I know. Jesus knows. So we turn to his word to see what he says so that we can learn and grow and understand what the one who has the wise counsel says to our church. And then he says to them and he tells them with this wise counsel to buy refined gold, which is the redemption by the precious blood of Jesus. And then they will have true riches, truly rich, not the gold that they had there in Laodicea. He goes on to say, buy white garments, the robe of righteousness, spiritual coverings for your sins. Even as we saw that picture, as Daniel read for us in the scriptures today of Joshua, who had dirty, filthy garments, and it was removed and he was clothed, as the text said, with festal robes. Buy from Jesus 
without money. The redemption through His precious blood as that then covers you and you become white as snow. And then He says to buy salve, which is the truth, the true light. Jesus, He says Himself, is the light of the world, the true light that enlightens men. The light of the world is Jesus. And so He says, by this ISAV that will open your eyes that you will see correctly. And it is as we see by the light of Christ revealed in the Scriptures, the truth. And so we live by the truth that governs, as it were, our eyesight. And so here Jesus brings this declaration to them, holding this out, calling on them, to repent. And this is where we pick up in verse 19 this morning. As he says, do these things, buy this gold, buy these white garments, buy this ISAF so that you could see. Without money, come and buy. And then he says, as he holds this out to them, those whom I love. You see, he did not leave them. He called on them in love, though they would turn their back on Him. Though they did not want His truth and His word, in love, He says, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. His words may have seemed harsh as He says, because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. All these things he's saying to them. You are miserable. You are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. That might have sounded harsh, as the rebuke of the Word of God sometimes is. But it comes with love. And the calling on them to turn from their wicked ways and to turn to the truth that they would not perish in eternity of hell. This morning now, I want to begin to bring this series to a close by looking at the next verses and seeing our Lord's gracious supplication to the church at Laodicea. We've seen the description of the one addressing the church, his depiction of the church, his kind declaration to the church, and now his gracious supplication to the church. As he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, because of the familiarity of this verse and because of the fact that this verse may well be one of, it's certainly one of the most misused and misinterpreted and wrongly interpreted verses in all of the Bible, I felt like we might take a few moments to look at it even today. No doubt 
You've all heard the messages and the songs and even seen the paintings, the pictures that show Jesus knocking on the door. Very nice pictures, by the way. They kind of look neat. Kids like them and all that. Jesus is standing at a door and knocking. Knocking. Knocking on the door. And you know, there's something about this door. It has no doorknob or latch on Jesus' side. So he's standing at the door and there's no door latch. You see, because he can't open the door. Oh, poor Jesus. Poor, poor Jesus. He can't open the door. And the door is a picture of the door of your heart. And all of this comes from this text. Behold, I'm standing at the door and knocking. And the door is your heart. And he's knocking on the door of your heart. But he can't open the door because he doesn't have a latch on his side. And so the hymn goes time after time he has waited before and now he is waiting again to see if you will open the door. Oh, won't you let him come in? That hymn is in one of our hymnals. Only one. One of our hymnals. We never sing it. You know why we never sing it? Because it's not true! Because all of this is heresy. He can't open it because there's no door latch on his side. The door latch is only on your side because you're the only one that can open the door to Jesus because, oh, he's a gentleman. And he won't impose himself upon you. You must open the door. His hands are tied. He has done all he can do for you. Yes, I do mock because first of all, how in the world has eternal God been reduced to such impotency? We're talking about the God who created the universe. We're talking about the God who created you. And he can't open the door because there's no latch. He won't impose himself upon you. Look at history, folks. Look at your Old Testament. Look what God has done. And now he can't impose because he's a gentleman? First of all, people, this is the easy believism of the gospel of our day. God is no longer in control. You are. You make the decision. You have to unlock the the door, open the door, open the latch. You do it. Don't you see? God's not in control. You're in control. I actually had a professor who said this. 
in the whole scheme of the thi- of world, God has made one vote for you, and Satan has made one vote for you. So their votes cancel each other out, and you have to make the final vote. So somehow or other in their scheme of thinking, Satan is as powerful as God. And you're more powerful than either one. Oh, he's waiting. Why don't you let him come in? God has been reduced to an impotent, incapable, unable to do anything, small g God. And you are the one who is in control. Now, I want you to uh, keep this in mind. Keep this picture of Jesus knocking at the door of your heart in mind as we turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. People, I'll tell you right up front, I don't want a God like that. And I don't even understand how anybody would ever want a God like that. Or why you would worship an impotent God like that. My God, the God of the Bible, the God that I want to worship and the God that I hope you want to worship is a God who is all-powerful, almighty, a miracle-working God, as we will see right here in this text. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As we see, secondly, not only does that display Him as impotent, but secondly, the Bible clearly teaches that God does impose Himself into the lives of people. Because look at what happens if He doesn't. And you... We're dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So how were you? Dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Now, I want to go back to that picture. Jesus is on this side of the door. He's usually standing kind of off to the right, knocking on the door. But there's no latch on the door. Knock, 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 knock. So here's what I want you to see. See, there's no latch on his side of the door. But what's on the other side of the door? You, and you are dead. So you may have the latch, but you can't do anything about it. How does a dead man reach up and grab the latch? Oh, I'm just a little bit alive. I'm just a little, little bit left in me. And I'll re- He's not sick. He's not just injured. He's dead. I've seen too many dead people. I've never seen one of them move. Dead men do not open doors. You know, we're coming up on uh, Tuesday is this thing called St. Patrick's Day. I remember seeing 
stories about Irish funerals and how many times they'll prop the dead guy up with a beer in his hand. He never drinks it. You know why? He's dead! Dead men cannot open the door. So what would you have if that theology from Revelation chapter 3 were 2? Jesus is knocking. And on the other side of the door, you're there lying dead. You'd have an eternal Jesus knocking and no one would ever be saved. Ever! Because dead men can't open the door. And Jesus, he won't open it. Because he's a gentleman. So for eternity, no one would ever be saved because dead men can't open doors. People, this is biblical reality. The Bible paints you as one who is dead in his trespasses and his sins. And dead men can't open the door even if they have a latch. So who does something about it? Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. He makes dead men to live. It is God who takes those who are dead in their trespasses and in their sins and makes them alive together with Christ. Oh, thank God that He did. Otherwise, we'd all still be dead. Because dead men can't open the door to let Him in. He must act. He must save you. Because if God did not save you, you would still be unsaved. You would still be dead. You've heard me say this many times. Years and years ago, there used to be signs out in the front of churches that say, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. I remember this church I attended at it in bright neon lights. In a cross, Jesus saves, or Jesus saves. Now today, the thinking is, you save. You save yourself. You open the door. You let him come in. Part of that hymn, by the way, if you would take but one step to him, you have to do it first. He's waiting. All you have to do is take one step. Dead men don't. Take steps. If God does not save you, you will never be saved. Jesus must save me. I'm dead. I'm a sinner. I'm unworthy. But thank God he does. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Just in case you think that Paul was teaching something that Jesus did not. I can't take much time to go into all that's happening in this chapter. It's a great chapter filled with wonderful promises from our Lord. 
and filled with a lot of pushback from some of the Jews of his day. For instance, in verse 42, they're saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say that I have come down out of heaven? Jesus said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now I know, and you know, the gracious, wonderful offer of the gospel. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But just before that, he says, no one will come to me unless it is revealed to him. And here in this text, he says the same thing. No one can come to me. But he's pleading with men to come. If you look over the page, the verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew, which would be common today. So what are we saying? Doesn't the Bible say, whosoever will may come? Absolutely. Does not Jesus say, if anyone comes unto me, I will give him rest? Absolutely. Does it not say, call on the Father and you will be saved? Call on God, call on the Bible, call on Jesus and you'll be saved? Yes, absolutely. Who's going to call? Who's going to come? Not dead men. But those that Jesus, by His love and grace, makes alive. And in that passage in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, it even says that He gives us the faith. That He makes dead men to live and gives us faith that we would then believe and follow. So, firstly, a look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 that teaches that Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and cannot open it and will not come in unless you open the door is an impotent God. Secondly, it also we also see in the scriptures that if that were true, then no one would ever be saved because you're dead in your trespasses and in your sins. So the biblical teaching is that God does save men, that God did save us. And thirdly, the Bible clearly teaches that God does open men's hearts. Look at Acts chapter 16. A few weeks ago, when we did our review on the city of Thyatira, I mentioned in passing that we would come back to this passage in our further study of Laodicea. And now's the time. Paul is in Philippi. Remember I told you that that Philippi was a part of the Greek Empire, and it was up above Pergamum, up above into the, into the part of Greece, over the sea that was on top of Turkey, or what is now Turkey. 
And so Lydia, it tells us in this text, who was from Thyatira, had a long distance to travel. But this is what we see. Verse 13, he's in Philippi, and on the Sabbath day, he went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had been assembled. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond. Who opened her heart? The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opens hearts. It is part of the gospel that God acts and men respond. The Lord opens her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. God saves. Jesus saves. Dead men are made alive and they then respond. Now, let's go back to our text in Revelation chapter 3. And I say to you quite confidently that this modern teaching from this verse is unbiblical. So let's take a look at what is said and see what God does say in this text. In Revelation chapter 3, in verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door. We're going to come back to that word, behold, next week. But I want today to see that he says, I stand at the door and knock. And I want to say that the first thing that we need to establish is that this is the door of the church. He's standing at the door of the church at Laodicea. He is not standing at anyone's heart. He's not standing at the door to anyone's heart. If you or if anyone suggests that he is at the door of a heart, you are putting that in this text. You are imposing your own beliefs upon the text. Because I challenge you to find the word heart when he says he's standing at the door. It does not say he is standing at the door of your heart. He's standing at the door of the church at Laodicea. Heart is not at the text. Rather, it is a picture of him speaking to this dead apostate church, not just individuals. Let me just say, of course, individuals make up the church. And of course, Jesus speaks to individuals. Well, look at that, I promise. But he is standing at the door of this church that has time and time again turned its back on him rejected his teaching, 
been happy to be lukewarm, happy to be deceived into thinking they're okay. And he's standing at the door of this dead apostate church. And it is him speaking to this church as he has done with the previous six churches that we have seen. But this is the only one where he's pictured standing at the door. More about that in a moment. But even as he addressed the six previous churches in this passage in Revelation 2 and 3, each had their own specific circumstances, each had their own specific needs, and Jesus was standing at the door of this church pleading with them to repent. He said some things to these other churches, but to this church, he's standing at the door calling on them to repent. Yes, what he said was important to all the individual members of that church as what he said is important to us in this church today. Yes, it was important. But the picture is him at the door of this church calling on the whole place to repent because the whole place was lost. How do I know? That's the next point. He's standing at the door of the church and it's apparent from the text that he is outside of the church. He is outside of this church. This is the picture. He's standing at the door. He's outside, standing at the door. He's not in the church. He's at the door of the church. And the fact that he is outside of the church shows us that there are no Christians in this church. No true believers in that church. Because what is characteristic of a true believer in Jesus? Characteristic of every true believer of Jesus is that he takes up residence in that person, in that believer. If you look at John chapter 14 for a moment, in verse 16, he says, I will ask of the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. This is one of many passages that Jesus promises that he will be with the believers, that he will take up residence in us. We are members of the body of Christ, and Christ, as it says, dwells within us. Now, in this church, back in Revelation chapter 3, he's outside, which means he's not dwelling in anyone in that church. The whole church is dead. And I'm not alone in this, in this thinking. This isn't new or some special kind of revelation that I received. This is what most sound commentators suggest that he was outside this church 
and there was not even one believer in Laodicea. What a shame. What a sad commentary to a church that obviously once was thriving, once had people who believed. Even with all the other six churches we've seen, he had someone in that church. There was someone there who had not given up and gone apostate. All of them had someone in their church that was a believer. But Laodicea, we have the picture here of Laodicea shutting him out. Not wanting him in their church. And this is what we've been seeing all along in this study. Look, verse 17. They thought they were rich. They thought they had become wealthy. They thought that they were in need of nothing. They thought they had all they needed. But they didn't have Jesus. They were wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. Every one of them. Everyone. He doesn't say in this text, he doesn't say to this church anywhere, except I do have a few of you who are not wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They were all that way. They all needed that precious blood of Christ to cover their sins. They all needed the truth to enable them to see they were all lost. They thought they were in need of nothing, and therefore they weren't even in need of Jesus. So they had the big keep out sign on the front of their church. I remember a friend of mine was new to the area in South Florida where we were, and he had uh, been called to a church in uh, Miami Gardens, I believe was the uh, area. And he said when he first got to the church, there were chain link fences all around it because of vandalism or whatever. And all around the chain link fences were signs, keep out. So one of, of course, the first things that he did was take down all those signs and all those fences. But this is what Laodicea was like. Keep out Jesus. Keep out Jesus. We don't need your letter. We don't need the messenger to come to us with your words, with your counsel, with your advising us to buy gold, refined gold. We don't need your counsel to get white garments. We don't need your counsel to buy for us ISAV. We have all we need. Keep out Jesus. Keep out. He's at the door. Because they've got the keep out signs up all around the church. Remember I told you that there were other churches in the area, and one of the churches that was in the area was the church at Colossae. 
And the church at Colossae was instructed to take that letter and have it read in Laodicea. And I can imagine them saying, Keep out, Paul! We don't need your letter here. Don't think of these people as innocent, sweet darlings. Remember, Jesus called them miserable, which meant pitiable for their ignorance. He called them wretched, which meant that they were bad people. Like in that parable of the vineyard that he painted, what will he do to those who killed the prophets and who who killed the son of the vineyard owner? Why, he will bring those miserable wretches to a wretched end. That's what Jesus says of these people. They're wretches. So they're saying, keep out, Jesus. Keep out, Paul. We're in need of nothing. They had rebelled against the teaching of Jesus, and by all understanding of the text, they didn't want it. They didn't want what Jesus was was speaking They didn't want what Jesus had to teach. They didn't want the truth of Jesus. We don't need your address. We don't need your counsel. And we don't need that letter to Colossae read here. Now, I don't believe that there are too many churches that are this absolute wretches and miserable, blind, poor, and naked like Laodicea, lukewarm. I actually said when we were doing the study of the church at Sardis, where he says you have an appearance of life, but you're dead. I think there are a lot more churches around like that. They had a few people in there and they had an appearance of life, but they were dead. Laodicea is a bad church. And I am sad to say that although I don't know that there are that many churches quite like this, I do fear that there are far more than we might think. We don't want truth from the Word of God. I have personally experienced that in no less than two churches. We don't want the truth of the Word of God in our church. We would rather remain in our ignorance, happy in our ignorance. Ignorance is bliss. We're having a good time here. We have fellowship suppers. We do good things. We're happy. Don't bring this truth. Don't bring the Bible. Don't bring Jesus into our church. And the good people left. And I think they are completely dead now. Because the good ones left. The saved left. There are churches like this. Sad to say that Jesus is on the outside and they don't even know it. They think they've got everything. They think they're fine. But Jesus is on the outside and they don't even know it. I am thankful that our church is not like that. I know that our church is not perfect. I know that we don't do everything right. But I know that I can say with confidence that the people of this church want Jesus in the church. How sweet and awesome or awful is the place with Christ within the doors. We want 
Christ in our church. We want His truth. We want His wise counsel. And we even once in a while need to have His rebuke. We don't want Him outside the door. And I thank you so much that that is your heart. And I would also say even here that I am not angry with churches around us like Laodicea. I pity churches around us like Laodicea. Our heart ought to go out to God that some of these people would wake up. That's where we're going next week with what Jesus pleads with these churches and this church. I want the things of Christ in our church. And I, I can tell by the prayers of the people in this church that you want the things of Christ in this church, and that you want Christ in this church. However, let me say in closing that I know that there are some of you here today that although this is addressed to a church, I address this to you, that you need to examine yourself to be certain that you are not still dead. That as the Word of God is preached in your hearing, you don't only have the outward call, which is what preaching is, but that you would have the inward call, which is what God does with it when He wakes men up from the dead. If this just goes over your head or rolls off your back and you don't care, it's just the outward call. But what you need, some of you and some of you kids, is the inward call. Where God comes to you and shows you, I'm lost. If I were to die today, I would go to hell. Oh, preacher, I don't want to go to hell. Little kids die without Christ. Teenagers. Young people. I pray that God would not just have these words go over your head or in one ear and out the other, but that the Spirit would take it into your inward heart. And then there'd be a twitch. An eye would open. The other eye would open. And as Lazarus was dead in that tomb and no one could do anything about it, when Christ said, Lazarus, come forth, he made the dead to live, I pray that some of you here would hear the voice of Jesus in you and make you to live. Make you to be alive. Because if Jesus does not save you, if Jesus does not make you to live, you remain dead. And the finality of that is eternity in hell. 
And as Jesus pleaded with this church that countless times rejected him, I plead with you. Hear his voice. While there is still time. And be saved by his grace. Let's pray.